Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of domestic violence, abuse, sex work, and kidnapping. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Bill Bigger was not a violent man. Between his Midwestern upbringing and his army training, he felt like he could control himself. But now, he was being put to the test. Because Bill was sitting across the table from the man he knew was responsible for his daughter's disappearance. He watched as Ken Tranchita shoveled food into his mouth. Bill had at least a couple inches on him. It would be easy to drive him out to the woods and smash in the only remaining teeth he had. He could make him pay, not just for what he'd done with Tina, but for everything. Bill forced himself to stay calm. Tina had been missing for two weeks and this pathetic man was his only lead. He had to be smart. There would be plenty of time for Ken to suffer later. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Last week, we started to unravel the mystery of Tina Bigger and her secret double life as a sex worker. This week, we'll join Tina's family and friends as they work together to find her and bring her home. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Bill Bigger wasn't sure what to think. By late August 1995, his eldest daughter, Tina Bigger, had been missing for almost a week. Bill thought he was extremely close to Tina, but that didn't feel true anymore. While searching for his daughter with her boyfriend, Todd, the two men had uncovered quite a few secrets. It culminated in a shocking revelation. Tina secretly worked as a sex worker. 
The discovery of her dual life shocked both men, but they didn't let it slow them down. There was too much to do. First, there was Ken Tranchita, the mysterious man who was supposed to loan Tina nearly $20,000. He seemed like the one person who might know where she was or what happened to her. But so far, Ken was impossible to find. Bill reached out to the Farmington Hills Police and was soon working in tandem with Detective Ron Schenken. Law enforcement found Ken and their electronic databases, along with a rap sheet a mile long. Forgery, burglary, breaking and entering, embezzlement, and fraud. Ken was involved in almost every type of petty crime imaginable. As Detective Schenken continued the hunt, Bill and Todd focused on sifting through the information they had so far, Tina's phone records. They quickly zeroed in on her repeated calls to a woman named Debbie Lawson. Bill was pretty sure that Debbie was connected to LA Dreams, the escort service Tina worked for. Now he had one goal, figure out if anyone at LA Dreams had ever heard the name Ken Tranchita. Bill gave them a call. Though the woman who answered the phone denied even knowing Debbie, Bill and Todd kept at it, begging for information about Tina. Eventually, they managed to get a hold of someone more sympathetic. A woman named Shelley tentatively agreed to meet Bill after hearing his story. On Tuesday, August 29th, Bill and Todd sat in a booth at a Detroit area Denny's, nervously awaiting her arrival. When Shelley showed up, she initially insisted she had met Tina at a health fair, not the escort service. But Bill wasn't one to beat around the bush. He handed Shelley a list of names from Tina's phone records. He also showed her Kintranchita's rap sheet. Bill told Shelley that he knew Debbie Lawson was connected to the escort business. He promised to keep their conversation anonymous but he desperately needed to track Ken down. Moved by the emotion in Bill's voice, Shelley took the list of names and promised to call him. A few hours later, his phone rang. This time, it was Shelley's mother, a woman named Donna Meddy. Donna explained Debbie Lawson was her sister. Together, they owned and operated four Detroit area escort services. Donna confirmed that Tina worked for them and that she'd met Ken Tranchita through their service. Before we dive into the psychology here, please note, I'm not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for the show. The revelation that Tina had met Ken through her sex work had some weighty implications. Studies have shown that women in sex work face an increased risk of violence compared to women in other industries. In a 2004 study on mortality among sex workers, researchers found that female sex workers in the US are 18 times more likely to be murdered than other women. The simple fact that Ken was a paying client did not bode well for Tina's safety. Despite the dark implications of how Tina met Ken, Bill and Todd were encouraged by their find. This was their first real lead in their search. Now they finally knew the connection between Tina and Ken. Hopefully they could finally get answers about Tina's secret life. According to Donna, she'd met Tina back in May 
By then, Tina was already working for another escort service. We don't know much about her time at her previous agency, but we do know she was fired for being unreliable, a side effect of Tina prioritizing school before work. She had a lot to overcome to be considered by Debbie and Donna. Besides her tendency to be late, Tina dressed more conservatively than the other women. Debbie even joked that Tina looked like a school teacher, but the sisters gave her a chance and the young woman didn't disappoint. Tina, or Crystal as her clients knew her, wasn't the most stunning sex worker in their roster. She was more of a girl next door than a knockout. But clients loved her. It was her personality that made her stand out. Clients appreciated how Tina really engaged with and listened to them. Throughout June and July, she went on dozens of appointments. So when a man called in around 5 p.m. on August 11th asking for a blonde, Tina immediately sprang to mind. Bill and Todd listened intently as Debbie recalled the first time Ken Tranchita called into LA Dreams. Debbie could tell immediately that he was a new client. In the escort business, you don't know faces, but you do know voices. Ken had a distinct way of speaking, slowly with long pauses between words. Tina met Ken on the 11th at a modest blue house just a few miles east of her apartment. She went through the standard safety protocol for these meetings, something she'd perfected by this point. She checked Ken's ID to make sure he was who he said he was, then phoned Debbie to let her know she had been paid. About an hour later, she called again to say she was leaving. Then she called one last time to say she was safely outside the house. Tina didn't share any details about what happened during the appointment, but she did say that Ken seemed like a nice guy, maybe a little lonely. He was mostly interested in talking. She learned he was in the armed service, even showing her his army ID and uniform. Ken, in turn, called LA Dreams afterward to rave about Tina, or Crystal as he knew her. The two, it seemed, had hit it off. Ken called LA Dreams again two days later, asking for Crystal. Tina met him at the Bluebird Hotel around 6.30 p.m., then called an hour later to say he'd booked an additional hour. Once again after the appointment, Ken called LA Dreams with high praise. He even mentioned he bought a sapphire ring for Tina, just a friendship ring. He was quick to clarify. Bill found Donna's account unsettling, it showed that Ken had quickly started to see Tina as more than just a sex worker. He was buying her presence, effectively pushing their relationship beyond a professional setting. Bill's fears were confirmed when the sisters described the next appointment Ken scheduled with Tina. He asked if she could go to a concert with him, not a typical escort appointment. Tina was planning to go, but she totaled her car the next day. She called Debbie and Donna to tell them that she was grounded until she got a new vehicle. They canceled the appointment with Ken and assumed that was the last time the two had interacted. Bill's mind reeled. He worried Tina had been talking to Ken outside the bounds of the escort service. 
That explained how he knew her home phone number and her real name. That meant Tina interacted with him without the safety and oversight the escort service provided. He wasn't sure why she would do that, but he was sure of one thing. They had to find Kintranchita fast. The sisters, moved by Bill's devotion, put their escort business on pause and recruited Tina's fellow sex workers to search for her full time. While Bill and Todd were asking Debbie, Donna, and their flock of sex workers for help, Detective Ron Schenken was busy conducting his own investigation. First, he went to Ken's listed address and spoke to his elderly landlady, Gloria Johnson. She thought she'd seen a woman matching Tina's description at the house with Ken the previous weekend, or maybe it had been the week before. The truth was, she'd had several strokes and her memory wasn't great. The following day, the detective returned to search Ken's bedroom, but he couldn't find anything amiss. The room was a little messy, with a military uniform hanging in the closet and a freestanding safe by the bed. The one thing that struck Schenken as strange was the mattress. It was brand new. When he asked Gloria about it, she said Ken got rid of his old mattress. Something about vomiting on it? Schenken made a mental note and continued his investigation. From there, he hit the streets asking about Ken all over the neighborhood. It turned out, Ken Tranchita was a creature of habit. He rarely ventured outside the 10-mile radius of his house. Schenken spoke to scores of people at the car wash where he worked and the diner he frequented, along with the family members he'd stolen from. They all painted the same picture. Ken Tranchita was an unreliable liar. Practically everyone who knew Ken refused to have anything to do with him, except for a tow truck driver named Jerry Holbert. For whatever reason, Jerry and Ken maintained a positive relationship, despite all the stress Ken put him through. Detective Schenken figured Jerry might be his best chance at finding the truth. On August 31st, the detective made his way to the Flamingo trailer park and knocked on Jerry's front door. A boulder of a man answered the door. Standing at six foot three and over 300 pounds with tattoos all across his arms, Jerry looked intimidating, but Schenken found him to be very open and friendly. Ken wasn't staying with Jerry, but the two had a long history. They'd met working at the Salvation Army about seven years ago. Since then, Jerry had helped Ken find work, a place to stay, and even invited him to holiday functions since Ken's family refused to see him. Jerry usually talked to Ken once a day or so, but on August 22nd, the day before Tina disappeared, Ken paged him about 30 times. Jerry hadn't returned Ken's calls. He was either sleeping off his late night shift or busy at work. The following day, Ken started paging him again, beginning in the morning and ending around 2 p.m. Jerry never found out what the fuss was about, but something big had clearly happened to Ken during those two days, and Schenken had a hunch it had something to do with Tina's disappearance. But in the middle of talking to Jerry, Schenken got a call on his cell phone. 
bit was Bill. He had been working with the ladies from the escort service, and they had just received a call from a man with a distinct, slow voice, asking for a blonde. Their caller ID service traced the call to a nearby bowling alley called Plum Hollow Lanes. They had found Ken Tranchita. Coming up, the police try to get some answers from Ken. Hi, it's Lainey, and I'm delighted to share a special announcement with you. On July 12th, Parcast Network is releasing its first book. It's titled Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Join Them. It's based on Parcast's hit podcast, Cults. And starting right now, you can pre-order it at parcast.com slash cults. With the benefit of years of research and insights, this captivating book has put together a comprehensive narrative that tries to make sense of mysterious groups such as Nexium, Heaven's Gate, the Manson family, and more. Exposing how shared beliefs can have deadly results and taking you deeper into the dark side of human nature than ever before. It's an essential read for any true crime fan. You do not want to miss it. There are limited copies available, so log on to parcast.com slash cults now to pre-order. Cults, inside the world's most notorious groups and understanding the people who join them. That's parcast.com slash cults. And thanks again for supporting Parcast. Now, back to the story. On Thursday, August 31st, 1995, Detective Schenken finally found Ken Tranchita at a local bowling alley. Ken didn't resist arrest. As a man who'd spent plenty of time in jail, he knew the drill. But if Schenken was hoping for straight answers from Ken, he was in for a wild ride. At 41 years old, Ken Tranchita saw himself as a perpetual victim. Standing at five feet, eight inches tall, he had curly brown hair that was cut into a sort of mullet. He had no bottom teeth and wore mismatched fake jewel earrings of green and blue. Schenken could immediately tell this guy was a piece of work, a chronic liar who seemed to truly believe the wild stories he told. But Schenken was after the truth. Ken initially pretended he didn't know why he was being detained, but quickly switched gears and admitted he knew Tina. He even said that he was deeply in love with her. While he'd met Crystal through LA Dreams a few weeks earlier, ultimately it was Tina, the college student who he fell in love with. Choosing a stage name is common practice in the sex work industry. Besides protecting the worker's privacy, choosing a more unusual name avoids the awkwardness of sharing a name with a client's mother, wife, or daughter. There are psychological benefits to donning a stage name as well. In a 2010 study, psychologist Mary Nell Troutner found that women in the sex industry often create a distinct identity to put on during work hours. By doing this, they distinguish their normal selves from the persona they cultivate at work. This allows a sex worker to separate themselves from the negative stigmas that often get attached to women in the industry. The simple fact that Ken called Tina by her real name was itself a cause for concern. 
but that worry turned to alarm when the police discovered the keys to Tina's 1983 Honda in his pocket. After this revelation, Ken wove another convoluted story. First, he said Tina made duplicates for him. Then he claimed he was watching her car while she was out of town. He claimed he was still in touch with her, but had promised not to tell anyone where she was. After Schenken started to question the truth of this story, Ken folded and told the detective where Tina's car was parked. It was on the far side of the parking lot at an apartment complex near his house. Schenken took Bill and Todd with him to find the car. It was dark when they arrived at the lot. They searched the vehicle with flashlights, but found nothing aside from Tina's ID, credit cards, and a few love notes from Ken. The last place to search was the trunk. It was empty, much to their relief. Inside was a pair of snow boots, a coffee mug, some old brake shoes, and a can of oil. It looked like someone spilled coffee from the mug, but Schenken found nothing else of interest. They were once again at a dead end. After searching Tina's car, Schenken interrogated Ken one more time. But after six hours, the detective was no closer to finding Tina. And what's more, the police didn't have enough on Ken to hold him for much longer. He had Tina's car keys, but there wasn't any evidence a crime was committed. They were forced to release him, but before Ken could disappear again, Bill Bigger hatched a plan. He called Debbie and Donna and asked them to pick Ken up from the station. Ken was a bit suspicious of strange women bailing him out of jail, but luckily, Debbie and Donna had a plan to get him to open up. Donna's daughter Shannon, a blonde who looked a little like Tina, introduced herself as Tina's 18-year-old sister, Julie. Ken stared at her, starting to shake. You look like her, he said, but she's better looking than you are. Shannon ignored the rude comment and cut to the chase, asking him where Tina was. After Ken gave her the same rambling stories he told the cops, Shannon tried another strategy, flattery. She told Ken she could see why Tina liked him so much. This loosened him up a bit. He said he was with Tina the day before she disappeared, having gone with her to school and to get lunch. But in the middle of the story, he suddenly got angry, claiming Tina was the reason he was in this mess. He told Shannon that if Tina was there right now, he'd like to bend her over his knee and choke her. Shannon was disturbed by the outburst, but she asked Ken again, where was Tina? Finally, he cracked. She was in Dayton, Ohio with a client. When Shannon asked him how to reach her, he said he had her number back in his room. The women immediately drove him home to retrieve it. Kitty merged with a piece of paper and an 807 area code. Overjoyed, Debbie immediately called it. But the number was out of service. The women stayed at the house with Ken for seven hours, taking turns trying to get a straight answer from him. They tried sweet-talking, grilling, and challenging his conflicting stories. Finally, in the early hours of Friday, September 1st, 
Ken promised Shannon he would take her to a payphone in the morning. He said he'd page Tina so she could talk to her. The women left the house and spent several hours searching the neighborhood's dumpsters for Ken's old mattress. Unfortunately, all they found was garbage. When they returned to the house at the agreed upon time, Ken was gone. For three days, no one saw hide nor hair of Ken. Bill papered the town with flyers. He even got to know Jerry Holbert, Ken's friend, in the hopes he could help them track Ken down. Finally, on September 4th, Labor Day, they got a tip. A priest called to report he'd seen Ken at Dunscotus College Seminary in nearby Southfield. Bill immediately called Jerry, thinking he might be able to help them get some answers. Jerry agreed to meet Bill there. It was a gorgeous 80-degree day, one of the last gasps of summer for the Michigan town. Dunn's Scotus hadn't held mass since 1992, but the priests living there still kept things tidy and allowed the neighborhood to use the sweeping grounds as a public park. It was usually a peaceful place, but today was different. Todd was the first to arrive. He quickly spotted Ken on the grounds and cornered him until the others could arrive. Within 15 minutes, Ken was surrounded by half a dozen people. Bill, Todd, Tina's co-worker Amy, Donna, Debbie, Shelley, and a few fellow sex workers. They all demanded answers. Ken wasn't prepared for any of the hostility, but was particularly surprised by his friend, Jerry Holbert. Over the last few days, Jerry got to know Bill Bigger pretty well, and it turned out that the two men were more alike than they realized. Despite their vastly different backgrounds, Bill was a street shooter, just like Jerry. Ken's refusal to help Bill find his daughter made Jerry furious. He was sure his friend didn't have anything to do with Tina's disappearance, so he didn't understand why Ken was being so shady. Angry and frustrated, Jerry arrived ready to beat the ever-loving crap out of Ken. All 300 pounds of truck driver rushed the small man, shoving him and demanding that he tell Bill where Tina was. Ken again claimed that Tina was in Dayton, but Jerry had known Ken long enough to tell when he was lying. Jerry was about to swing when Bill stepped in between them. He told Jerry to calm down. He didn't want Ken hurt, at least not yet. The group continued to demand answers and Ken responded, I'd never hurt Tina, I loved her. He caught himself referring to Tina in the past tense and backtracked, saying, I still love her. But his slip wasn't lost on Bill. He finally looked at Ken and said, if you've killed my daughter, you've killed her. Just let me know where she is so I can take her home. Ken immediately turned green. He took a few steps away, then hunched over and vomited. Coming up, Bill Bigger finally learns the truth. Now, back to the story. The Labor Day confrontation at Dunscotus ended in disappointment. Once Ken started to puke, 
it became clear they weren't going to get any information out of him. The search party backed off for the night, and Ken went back to stay at Jerry's trailer. No matter how mad Jerry was at Ken, the guy still needed a place to sleep. Plus, Jerry had to host his weekly Monday night poker game. While Jerry and his friends played, Ken sulked as far from the poker table as possible, making a phone call near an open window. He talked openly, confident the men placing bets at the kitchen table weren't listening. At one point, he told the person on the other end of the line that he had tried to see her today and almost got in trouble. What Ken didn't know was that Shelley and one of the sex workers from Tina's search party were outside the window, listening to his every word. When Shelley told Bill what they'd overheard, he felt a swell of hope. It sounded like Ken was holding Tina hostage somewhere near Dunscotus. Ken gave them the runaround every time they cornered him, but Bill Bigger wouldn't give up. He hoped that if he talked to Ken man to man, Ken would finally give in. So, Bill knocked on Jerry's trailer door and offered to buy Ken dinner. He promised Jerry that he'd bring Ken back right after. Never one to pass up a free meal, Ken agreed. Bill took Ken to a nearby restaurant called the Ram's Horn. It was about 1 a.m. and for the first part of the meal, the exhausted Bill just sat watching Ken eat. The two couldn't have looked more different. Bill, the decorated military man, sitting grave and silent, and Ken with his flashy clothing and nervous eyes, shoveling food into his mouth like a ravenous animal. After a period of silence, Bill asked Ken once again where his daughter was. Ken repeated his previous story. Tina was in Ohio. But this time, he added some new details. He said she'd gone to get away from an ex-boyfriend from Alaska and that she was wearing green shorts when she left. Ken said he could page Tina in the morning. If that didn't work, he'd take Bill to her personally. He promised. Afraid Ken would run off again, Bill spent the night on Jerry's couch. While Ken slept in the bedroom, he and Jerry talked late into the night. Bill told Jerry that when he'd first learned Tina worked for an escort service, he didn't want to believe it. But now, he didn't care. He loved his daughter and just wanted her home. Jerry asked Bill why he didn't just kill Ken. It's what he would do. Bill sighed. If he did that, he might never find his daughter. In the morning, Bill walked Ken to his usual payphone and stood by as he dialed Tina's pager. Then they waited and waited. Nothing. Bill reminded Ken about his promise to take him to his daughter. Backed into a corner, Ken finally gave Bill a concrete answer. Tina was at the Hilton Hotel in Dayton, Ohio. Bill immediately called information. He waited with bated breath as the operator looked up the number. It turned out that there was no Hilton in Dayton. Considering Ken Tranchita's behavior, it might be tempting to label him as a pathological liar, but from a clinical standpoint, there is an important distinction between regular liars and pathological ones. 
In a 2016 paper, psychologist Lana Musenich distinguished between normal lying and pathological lying. She wrote that pathological lying should be reserved for people who lie without having any external reason to do so. Though Ken seemed unable to control his impulse to lie, every fairy tale he spun potentially benefited him in a concrete way. Ken's lies were motivated by self-interest. No matter how frustrating Ken was, he clearly made choices about when to lie and to whom. After the discovery about the hotel, Bill left, disgusted at himself for ever trusting Ken. A few days later, Ken disappeared again. After that, the police redoubled their efforts. They assigned a new detective to the case who revisited Tina's car. When authorities had first examined the old Honda, they hadn't found anything incriminating. But on September 14th, they took another look. This time, there were some startling revelations. In the trunk of Tina's car, police discovered dozens of brownish-red droplets, what Shankin, Bill, and Todd had written off as spilled coffee. When a detective tried to lift the carpeting over the spare tire, he discovered it was stuck to the bottom. He forced the carpet up, pulling it high to reveal a giant pool of congealed blood. Testing revealed that it matched Tina's blood type. Ken was the last known person in possession of Tina's car, and this gave police their first concrete evidence he was involved in some kind of foul play. They immediately put out a warrant for Ken's arrest. They also uncovered another detail. They knew the Tranchitas owned several houses in Farmington Hills. They'd searched all of them, but after talking with Ken's brother on September 20th, they learned about one they'd missed. It turned out, Ken had an Aunt Helen who'd owned a house near Dunscotus when he was young. She'd since sold the house, but Ken spent many summers playing in her large, overgrown backyard as a boy. The place seemed special to him. It looked like the police had another property to search. The next day, two Farmington Hills detectives made their way to Aunt Helen's old place. They pushed their way through the knee-high grass and broken branches, keeping an eye out for anything unusual. The air was filled with smells of late summer, goldenrod, mud, and wild raspberries. After more than 30 minutes with nothing to show, they started to head back to the car. That's when one of them spotted something. It looked like a pile of clothing against a chain-link fence, overgrown with grapevines. As they drew closer, the detectives were hit by an overwhelming stench. They covered their noses and inched forward. On the ground, next to the fence, they saw a decaying body lying in the fetal position. It was clothed, but just barely. The jean shorts were frayed and rotting, and a short-sleeved shirt was pulled up across the chest, revealing a dark bra. There was no mistaking the blonde hair. They'd found Tina. Reporters were on the scene almost immediately, broadcasting the story far and wide. After weeks of searching, hoping, and praying, that was how Bill Bigger and Tina's loved ones learned of her death on the news. 
Tina's body had been left outside for almost a month, so determining the specific cause of death proved difficult. The autopsy eventually concluded that she was probably strangled to death and that she was likely killed the same day she disappeared. Kin Tranchita was found working on a golf course about 20 miles south four days later. He was arrested in an apartment in downtown Detroit on Tuesday, September 26th. When police showed Ken pictures of Tina's body, he broke down and confessed to killing her. According to him, Tina came to his house on the morning of the 23rd to yell at him, presumably about the money he was supposed to loan her. In a sudden burst of anger, Ken pushed her. He said she fell and hit her head against the safe in his bedroom and died. Panicking, he left Tina's body on his bed for a few hours, then moved it to the trunk. Then he drove to his aunt's old house and dumped Tina's remains in the backyard. But a couple details in his confession didn't really make sense. It didn't explain how forensic experts determined Tina was likely strangled. They found no signs of trauma to her skull. On the other hand, strangulation didn't account for the blood in the trunk of Tina's car. But even with these unanswered questions, the evidence against Ken was overwhelming. At his trial, Ken pleaded guilty to second-degree murder. The hearing was a nightmare for all involved. Because she was a sex worker, Tina's reputation was on trial just as much as her killer's. And despite only having known Tina for 11 days, Ken Tranchita insisted that he loved her deeply. In the end, his plea deal was accepted and he was sentenced to life in prison. The people who devoted themselves to find Tina were forced to move on with their lives. Bill Bigger retired from the Coast Guard in 1996 and went back to Traverse City to spend time with his wife and five remaining children. Todd Nuremberger transferred to a research facility in the Virgin Islands. Debbie and Donna testified at Kin's hearing, and as a result, their escort offices were raided a week later. The sisters pleaded guilty to prostitution, were fined, and sentenced to probation. Debbie passed away in the spring of 1996. Jerry Holbert, on the other hand, still considers Kin Tranchita a friend. He visits him occasionally at the Oakland County Jail. Sadly, those close to Tina were left with more questions than answers. Her cause of death was never definitively determined. Then there was her mysterious financial situation. As a waitress, Tina made up to $200 a night. As a sex worker, she pulled in anywhere up to $2,000 a week. Despite this, she somehow maxed out her credit cards and drove around in a 12-year-old car. These mysteries will likely never be solved, and maybe Tina would have wanted it that way. At the very least, with Kintranchita behind bars, her family finally found some measure of closure. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. For more information on Tina Bigger and her mysterious disappearance, amongst the many sources we used, we found the co-ed Call Girl by Fanny Weinstein and Melinda Wilson extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. 
Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Scott Stronick, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Danny Messerschmidt, with writing assistance by Georgia Hampton and Terrell Wells, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Hi, it's Lainey, and I'm delighted to share a special announcement with you. On July 12th, Parcast Network is releasing its first book. It's titled Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. It's based on Parcast's hit podcast, Cults. And starting right now, you can pre-order it at parcast.com slash cults. With the benefit of years of research and insights, this captivating book has put together a comprehensive narrative that tries to make sense of mysterious groups such as Nexium, Heaven's Gate, the Manson family, and more. Exposing how shared beliefs can have deadly results and taking you deeper into the dark side of human nature than ever before. It's an essential read for any true crime fan. You do not want to miss it. There are limited copies available, so log on to parcast.com slash cults now to pre-order. Cults, inside the world's most notorious groups and understanding the people who joined them. That's parcast.com slash cults. And thanks again for supporting Parcast. Parcast.